Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Bomber here, very pleased to be joined again by Brian Alexander. Brian is a senior scholar at Georgetown University where he's been running some really interesting classes that we do wanna talk about. He's also a futurist who's written a, a really fascinating book called Academia Next, which uh, we talked a bit about earlier in the year, but uh, six months is like a lifetime these days. And that's the last time we talked to Brian. So Brian, welcome back to Trending in Education. Well, thank you so much, Michael. It's great to be back. Uh, yeah. Thank you for hosting. Yeah, no worries. And thank you for your service, where as someone who follows Brian and Brian's uh, prolific, whether it's on Twitter or LinkedIn, or he hosts regular future thought leadership webinars uh, every Thursday. He's really someone who I would encourage uh, listeners to Trending in Education to track down. And also you have a website, right, Brian? I have multiple websites. Uh, you yeah. can go to brianalexander.org, which mm -hmm. is my uh, kind of blog plus hub. You can go to ftte.us to uh, check out my Future Trends uh, report. Mm -hmm. um, those will give you a good start. Nice. Yeah. And also, if you if you Google Brian Alexander Futurist, you'll find him that way, too. And, and Academia Next is the other book that was prescient in many ways. And there were some ideas in there, particularly around the potential of a pandemic that Brian was talking about uh, well in advance of, of the crazy year that we've had. And then since March, uh, last we talked, uh, you were just beginning to track the impact of the pandemic and the pandemic response to universities and campuses across the U.S. Yeah. back in March. And then that's something that really you've been continuing to collect all that information, share it out and, and discuss with folks. Maybe we could start there, Brian, where as someone who is looking ahead, someone who's a futurist, what's it like when you get something surprising like like what happened with the pandemic this year many of us were caught off guard but for you you talked about this with some detail in academia next and you did seem to be somewhat ready to respond to this crazy year that we've been living in what's it like when a prediction uh, or a possible scenario for the future then begins to take hold what's that been like for you this year well, it's been fascinating. Just to explain for uh, viewers who haven't uh, had a chance to read the book yet, and you should, the, the book came out over the past winter, published by Johns Hopkins University Press. And uh, in, in the early chapters, I asked people to imagine different futures for higher education. And the book is an exploration of the next 20 or 25 years of American higher ed. And so one point, the now notorious page 23, yeah. I asked the audience to imagine uh, what pandemic might do to higher education. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, about the scale of the 1918 great uh, influenza. Right. Can you imagine what that would do to say uh, online learning, uh, mm -hmm. to sports, mm -hmm. uh, to enrollment. And uh, for a lot of readers, the, they didn't really notice that until March. And right. then, uh, you know, saying, Alexander, are you in league with dark forces? <laughs> I mean, what did you know? Right, right. Uh, and, and the thing is, for a lot of people, this was indeed a black swan. Black swan is Nicholas Taylor's term for an event that is incredibly un improbable, very, very unlikely to happen. But when it does happen, it becomes enormously influential. And we also revise our past understanding to make it seem a little more likely, a little mm -hmm. more comprehensible. Yeah. 
And the, the problem is in the futures community, uh, our, our very small profession, we've been thinking about pandemics for maybe 30 or 40 yeah. years. It's a staple. In fact, I've used this as an exercise in class before and in workshops. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very, very, as a workshop exercise, it's very fruitful because it's a little orthogonal to our normal understanding of higher ed and it forces you to rethink things. So it's pretty useful. Mm-hmm. Uh, but unfortunately, the futures community, although we've done great work on this, we weren't able to persuade the world to really pay attention, mm-hmm. unfortunately, which yeah. is an instructive uh, story by itself. So I'm, I'm saddened that this is one forecast that uh, I nailed. I, I hope some of my more optimistic forecasts come true instead. Yeah. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to get into some of those, perhaps, uh, just because we, we could all use something, something optimistic at some point this year. But, but yeah, it was, uh, it was interesting. I remember when we met last, we were talking about lessons learned from uh, science fiction and ways in which the folks have imagined what a pandemic might be like prior to it happening. Because I think when we last talked, it was early March, and we hadn't really seen the first wave. Now that the first wave has passed through some parts of the U.S., and it does seem like we may be gearing up for whatever comes next, any top-level perception from you in terms of where we are and what the the possible scenarios might be for the pandemic and the pandemic response in higher ed? Back in March, uh, I dove into some of the epidemiology and some of the modeling, and I came up with three possibilities. Uh, One of them was that we would experience a single great wave of uh, infection, kind of what uh, Hubei province went through and what some parts of the world have gone through. Mm-hmm. Um, and to an extent, we might be on that. If you take a look at, say, the, the big arc from February through last week, it looks yeah. like amazing number of infections and deaths, but the rate of increase has been dropping for a few weeks. So yes. maybe we're on the other side of that. Mm-hmm. It's also possible that we'll see uh, successive waves. I know a lot of healthcare people are very nervous uh, about November because when flu season hits, it, that may accelerate COVID cases. That is, it may getting the flu may make some people more vulnerable to being infected and injured by COVID, mm. uh, and also the just the general transmission of disease may make the two interplay together pretty pretty well. Mm-hmm. People may be weakened by the flu and they're mm-hmm. more susceptible to be killed or badly injured. So we may get successive waves like yeah. they're experiencing now, unfortunately, in Europe. Right. It's also possible that we'll just keep going with this. Yesterday, I noted this, we passed a very, very grim milestone, a 200,000 dead mm-hmm. in the United States. And we're coming up close to a million dead worldwide. Wow. And it may be that this will just keep roaring along. After all, we don't have a vaccine. Mm-hmm. I mean, even if, even if we create a vaccine, and that is an if, because we've never created a vaccine for a coronavirus before. Mm-hmm. Even if we do, that has to go through trials. It has to go through determined safety and efficacy. Mm-hmm. It has to go through production. It has to go through distribution. Mm-hmm. And this also requires that people actually take the thing. And yeah. well, in the U.S., you've got uh, the anti-vax movement. Sure. And a lot of people who are skeptical of this. And no doubt there'll be a politics to this. Yeah. Uh, imagining if we have, say, a Biden administration, I could imagine the uh, QAnon people circulating rumors that getting vaccinated will cause you to eat babies or something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so if all those things do manage to work, we may be looking at another year, maybe more, mm-hmm. in which case the pandemic could just keep roaring ahead. Yeah. And then this, this forces us to rethink education. Do we assume that basically academic year 2020, 2021, is that basically going to be the pan- pandemic year? Mm-hmm. So that most students are either going to be entirely online 
mm-hmm. or they're going to be experiencing some kind of either blended experience, a high flux experience, or they'll be in person, but the in-person experience will be very strange. Mm-hmm. Perhaps low density populations on campus yeah. uh, and restrictions on interaction mm-hmm. uh, and all kinds of stories about that. So we, we may just be seeing that kind of threefold experience unfold right now. Yeah, yeah. And a lot in that summary there, which does bring to mind the idea of scenario-based thinking, which I know is a big component of being a futurist or someone who's trying to understand where the world might head. I've seen you talk in many different contexts about possible futures rather than trying to be pegged as someone who's foreseeing a single scenario in the future, even on page 23 of Academia Next, it was a possible scenario. It wasn't saying this will be happening this year at this particular time. Yes. Can you talk a bit about the benefit of thinking about possible futures and the benefit of uh, scenario-based thinking for anyone, really? As you mentioned before, futurists are relatively small, but perhaps growing uh, contingent but for folks who may be outside of that small circle, what's the right way to think about the future and how is it beneficial to, to get into scenario-based thinking, possible futures, et cetera? Sure. Well, let me just focus on scenarios. Uh, futurists have a lot of tools in our toolbox and scenarios are some of the most visible. A scenario is basically a story about a future and it's a future that's determined by one or several things happening in a major way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, for example, a, a classic one in, in poli-sci is imagining if a war breaks out in a certain way. You know, so how do we handle a war between Pakistan and India, for example? Mm-hmm. Uh, or you can use it uh, to shape other things. For example, uh, what happens if we create a general AI that's more or less competent? And in education, we, we've created a whole series of scenarios, and I can get into those in a second. But why this matters, first of all, humans love stories. There's uh, people who will exaggerate a bit and say we are essentially creatures of stories, but we do love them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we do love thinking through them. And in terms of futures work, a story lets you imagine yourself or your family or your community or your institution in a certain future and it lets you think through the possibilities this is really really important when it comes to secondary and tertiary effects Uh, there's a science fiction writer once said it's easy to predict the car what's hard is to predict traffic jams Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well scenario lets you think that through it lets Mm -hmm. you imagine that i'm driving around a car well other people driving around a car well how could this play out so for example one of my scenarios is um, based on the idea that uh, what if healthcare becomes the leading sector of the American economy? And there are all, re- all kinds of reasons for that to happen, having to do with just the unique nature of how we finance healthcare, yeah. uh, thinking of the demographics of uh, growing numbers of older people who mm-hmm. tend to consume uh, more healthcare and so yeah. on. Well, then how does this impact higher education? So people get to think this through. Okay, does that mean if there's greater demand for healthcare professionals, does it mean that we have to expand pre-med programs, anesthesia program? Well, let's think about all the different parts of healthcare. Does it mean we have to expand psychology as a major? Do we have to add more IT classes for, say, electronic medical records? How about hospital administration, undergrad versus grad school? How do you expand this and so on? Uh, and then you think as well about, okay, what does this do in, in secondary school? Do you have more students in high school start positioning themselves for yeah. a medical career? How does this change fundraising? Uh, mm-hmm. Do medical companies play a larger role in philanthropic donations to higher education and so on? So then you imagine 
whoever you might be, if you're a faculty member in a non-medical field, how does this impact you? If you're yeah. a librarian, if you're an administrator, if you're a student, mm -hmm. how does this change your life? How does this change? So that's one scenario. The book has a stack of scenarios uh, trying to imagine different possibilities. So one thing to do is to just see yourself through one of those. But the other thing to do that's really exciting as well is to build a scenario. So mm. you pick some kind of force that you think will have a strong determination on the future. Mm. Well, to ask people to think that what kind of world would, would result from that? And that's a powerful, challenging, and very satisfying exercise. Yeah. One, one more thing about this. Scenarios are very creative. Making them is an act of creativity. It's yeah. And then playing through them is basically role playing. Right. Uh, I think they really unleash people's creativity, which I find uh, very, very important. Yeah. And I, I wanted to go there next, too, because I remember during our previous conversation, once we began to talk about science fiction, things got even more exciting, which is saying something, because I think it was pretty engaging prior to then. But it does seem like there are aspects of Futures work that are very closely tied to gaming and science fiction. And those are two things that I know it's something that you've done a good deal of work in and even recently did a, a seminar class in this. And I'd, I'd love to, to hear uh, more from you on any connections that might be applicable, maybe beginning with gaming and then also connecting into science fiction. Sure. I think in general, gaming is an incredibly powerful tool for all kinds of purposes. Right now, it's arguably one of the world's leading culture industries. Mm -hmm. If you look at the sheer number of people who play games all over the place, everything from uh, digital, small digital games on phones to massive digital games on consoles and on PCs, as well as the big tabletop renaissance, which is really, really fascinating. Not to mention the, we have a couple of generations of role-playing games. Yeah. So I'm fascinated by that as an object of study. I also think it's fascinating as, as a cognitive tool. I mean, we know that over the past few decades, we've observed that gaming has a few different educational roles. So one is that people can play through games as a way of learning a content or a skill. And that's a very, very important tool. Another is that they can study games because games are, are very interesting intellectually. I mean, they're, mm -hmm. Uh, you can look at them through the lens of anthropology, through history, through literature, through computer science, through mm -hmm. new media studies. Mm -hmm. On top of this, there's the pedagogical boon of students making games. Yeah, there are a lot of tools that let us make those uh, from a very basic level to a very advanced level. Mm -hmm. I think one more for that is the idea of we could call it the co-curricular nature of games that we have libraries as well as residence life who for residential students and in-person students would host you know, gaming nights or gaming mm -hmm. sessions. But also we have the rise of esports. Um, right. Uh, a very, very important field. I, I've been working on this since uh, the 1990s. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I taught a class or co-taught a class in 1999 and 2001 on the American experience in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. and, uh, a political science colleague and I created a political decision role-playing game about that, which the students found absolutely riveting. Mm -hmm. uh, and so this past summer, I, I taught a full seminar at this. Georgetown University has a master's degree program called Learning Design and Technology, mm -hmm. uh, which focuses on pretty much what it says, learning and design technology. Mm -hmm. so we had our first ever seminar on uh, gaming, and it was fascinating. The, uh, the goal I had was I wanted students to play games, think about games, and make games. Mm -hmm. And I want to take them through all kinds of forms. I want them to look at computer games, at tabletop games, at role-playing mm -hmm. games. 
and at the same time read scholarship about that look at the theory of how these work why they matter and how they can work out for learning it was a very successful class we had to wing a lot of things we couldn't do tabletop uh, because we couldn't be around the same table uh, so we tried to use different uh, digital equivalents i introduced students to role-playing games and yeah yeah it was uh it was very interesting just especially the the role-playing games are very sweet because the students were, some of them were initially very nervous about this. They just, it was really eerie and creepy to them. They didn't see that they had no experience of it and they thought it was yeah. just odd. And then as we started playing, they got involved and got more involved. And when I stopped the game, they didn't want to stop. And yeah. That's always a good sign. We, yeah. we also used an academic game. I don't know if you've seen this. I, I want to recommend this to all of our listeners and viewers called reacting to the past. Hmm. It's a series of games produced by scholars all around the world. The reacting base is in um, New York at Barnard College. Well, these are games, these are role-playing games about major moments in history. Hmm. Uh, and what happens is uh, you get a large group of people, easily a dozen up to 40, and they each play key decision makers at, at a major crisis moment. Mm -hmm. So some of the games are about uh, trials, such as the trial of Galileo, uh, hmm. The, uh, or the trial of Socrates. Some of them are about political decisions, such as the Seneca Falls meeting or the uh, Congress of Simla that mm -hmm. decided the fate of post-independence India. And students have to dive into primary source materials, into secondary materials to learn their roles. And then they have to, through those roles, make a decision or come mm -hmm. to a cumulative decision. And it's a terrific pedagogy. I, I had students do one on the Black Death. They mm -hmm. all played participants in a, a small town, actually a small city in Britain. And uh, again, they were awkward at first, but then they really got into it. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, and at the end of the class, the students produced a, a whole batch of games, the, everything mm. from uh, tabletop games to uh, computer games to uh, two of them dove into bingo and cr produced these very impressive, very accessible bingo games. I mean, it was one of them taught himself a programming language to uh, finish his, I mean, you know, yeah. Um, so I'm very satisfied with that. Yeah, yeah. And it does sound like there's a lot of themes in there. In addition to the gaming and the simulation theme, there's uh, like problem-based, collaborative learning. Mm -hmm. It's a very, so like games, many of these games are by their nature, very social and social emotional. And, and it does remind me also, uh, I'm a big uh, fan of Yuval Harari's work. And it, mm -hmm. when he talks about uh, Sapiens, part of what makes our species so adaptive is our ability to, to talk about myths, talk about fables, talk about things that are not exactly reality. Frequently that is what allows us to activate others, activate their imaginations and create shared meaning and move ourselves in new directions. Are there ways in which you think the, the academic world is ready to adopt some new tactics, uh, whether they be collaborative learning, problem-based learning, game-based learning. In many ways, the, the pandemic and the response to the pandemic has been a catalyst for the acceleration of trends. I'd love to hear more you know, just from your perspective, what are the trends that are accelerating due to the pandemic? But just to begin, do you think there is an opportunity now to, to sort of shift the curriculum to things that are a little more scenario-based, game-based in terms of academics? This is a fantastic moment for that. And let me just caveat that. When I talk about opportunities, when I talk about the positive possibilities, 
I do so in full awareness of the real horrors, the mm -hmm. stresses, the anxieties, the challenges that we yes. have. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I know some people find it difficult to talk about both of these at the same time. As a futurist, I have to look at all possibilities. Yeah. Well, someone who analyzes higher education, again, I have to be open to all possibilities. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I want to make sure that when I'm talking about something that I find exciting and beneficial, mm -hmm. that is one part of a broader picture, which has some of the opposite as well. Yep. So we are, I think, in higher education, going through a rethinking of what it means to teach well in higher education. Now, research is not quite part of this. In fact, research is taking a kind of step back, I think. Yep. Um, but we're really trying to figure out how to teach well, in part because we're, the medium of teaching uh, is changing. What mm -hmm. it needs to be in the classroom if we have a blended class or high yeah. And so I think that has all kinds of potentials for, for work. There's also the extra fillip of uh, fear that we fear that the reputation of higher education might take a hit. Online learning is often perceived to be of lower quality than face to face. So we really want to work hard on this. So we know active learning has all kinds of benefits. We, we know this from scholarship and practice for years. And so problem-based learning is one really great way of doing this. Scenarios, I mean, scenarios go back in a few different disciplines, particularly business and poli-sci for yeah. decades. We know how to use them. So we have that option. The problem is partly we have the natural, you could call it inertia, you could call it conservatism of a lot of faculty. I don't mean that entirely as a critique for a lot of faculty. They simply don't have support or time. Yeah. Right. Work. And some of them are just very satisfied. Um, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. the, the stereotype of the yellowed notes uh, is a true thing. Uh, this happens enough. And then some find they have objections to these kind of pedagogies. They don't feel that they suit what they're doing. Yeah. And some are going through the cognitive process of translating face-to-face -to, -face to online. And in that process, many go with a kind of copy and paste for a step. I lecture this way, I will mm -hmm. lecture that way. I do small groups this way, I'll copy them over that way. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is we have, again, the, the extraordinary, literally extraordinary pressure of the pandemic. It's, yeah. uh, it's one thing to, to rethink a curriculum if you've got time off to do that. Yeah. It's another if, if you see the world closing in around you, mm -hmm. uh, if you're losing family members. or right. if, Plus, the, in, for some people, they're experiencing the bigger impact of the pandemic in terms of finances. Sure. The U.S. staggers through a horrible recession. Yeah. So do you... Yeah, for example, if, if you're not teaching in the summer, do you devote time in the summer to revamping your fall classes or do you do some part-time work in order to offset the possibility of financial hit coming down the road? Yeah. yeah. So I, I think we do have these possibilities and I hope we seize them. Now, there are other trends that predate COVID that COVID accelerates. Mm -hmm. uh, one of them is the, uh, in the general gradual incremental shift online, which uh, in Europe they often refer to as digitization. Yeah. And you, and you get some of that. This is accelerating that, obviously. Mm -hmm. uh, there's also the problem of higher education's financial sustainability. That's a deep problem. There's a lot to, to pick at. But I, I think most of your viewers and listeners will not find it controversial to think that uh, tuition, published tuition, keeps rising in ways that scare a lot of people. Yeah. The uh, ownership of debt has escalated to just unprecedented levels in higher education. Mm -hmm. And this terrifies a lot of people. There's yeah. anxiety about the quality of degrees and the quality of experience. Uh, and all of this has, has pushed higher education to a kind of fragile moment where it's getting harder and harder to operate. Right. Uh, 
In fact, one sign of that is that while published tuition figures have been rising for especially the top, say, 30% or so colleges and universities, we've also been discounting what people actually pay. Right. In fact, you know, the, the kind of typical student pays something like half of what the published tuition is. So right. if you have a $50,000 tuition for an expensive college, it turns out that for every student who pays 50000 there's another one who basically pays nothing. Right. Uh, roughly, roughly. And then a lot of them pay 25000 And that discount keeps increasing, which people in finance think is unsustainable. We also have other pressures. Public universities, which are about two-thirds of U.S. higher education, have seen state funding on a per-student basis decline for the yep. past 25 years. Yep. And the, the pandemic is just going to accelerate that because mm -hmm. state budgets are being clobbered. They have less revenue coming in. They're having to spend more. And so we know across the country, north, south, east, west, red or blue state, it doesn't matter. Cutting mm -hmm. public higher education is one of the first and easiest things to do. It yeah. has no political negative res results for uh, legislators or governors. So, And we're already seeing this happen in multiple states, like right. uh, in Colorado, for example, in Iowa. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's going to make, again, it's going to make our financial situation even more precarious. It's going to cause us to raise tuition more, to expand discount rates, and to expand student debt, Yeah, which is just, a, so that trend is frightening. Mm -hmm. Another one that, that COVID is really kind of a, as like a bank shot has accelerated is the movement to rethink higher education in terms of racial justice. Mm -hmm is to, in particular, to focus bias against uh, Black and Hispanic students. And that's been building over the past, well, it may be for a long time, really. Yeah. Uh, a part of it happened during the uh, second term of the Obama administration. We saw it pick up with the Trump administration. But this summer, we saw it really take off and electrify the nation mm -hmm. uh, through the murder of George Floyd and mm -hmm. the resurgence of Black Lives Matter. And so right now, that, that whole sense of we should rethink higher education, we should make it a better place to support Black and Latino students, that sense is now really front and center. Yeah. Uh, for example, I don't know if you saw this, the University of Chicago's English department just announced that for the upcoming academic year, they're only going to admit students who study Black literature. Mm-hmm for example. Yeah. Uh, you think about Princeton, where they're renaming buildings and a massive faculty statement urged a really big overhaul of, the, of this university in terms of racial justice. Yeah. Uh, that's the university that just yesterday got the number one ranking from the U.S. News and World Report. Right. I think that, that trend is accelerating. Mm -hmm. uh, and so those are a few. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Once you get started, it's hard to stop. But uh, but you also mentioned optimism, which I appreciate your your point, and I share the sentiment around being respectful uh, of the tremendous loss and the suffering that is out there this year is something we we have talked about a bunch on the show, and it's definitely something we are feeling, and we empathize. And empathy is a big theme that that I think is everywhere these days. But but what has been interesting to me as someone who does this show regularly is that. There are increasing pockets of optimism. Maybe that is just human nature that when things are dark, we need to find inspiration. We need to look for the, those rays of hope. Are there places where you are feeling hopeful or you are, you are seeing some favorable scenarios on the horizon? And, and particularly if they're tied to places where it requires activation, it requires uh, change yeah. of our mindsets or our ways of working. I'd love to hear more from you on, on that. 
Sure. Uh, so to go back to gaming for a second, I just build on that. Again, I think gaming has all kinds of possibilities. I mean, it's not a universal solvent that doesn't work for everything, but I think you can really do an awful lot. Uh, this summer, uh, I was part of an online event hosted by Arizona State University, and I was uh, helping an event that I, and I wanted to get people thinking about this moment, and I wanted them to think more imaginatively. So working with one of the event's organizers, we came up with this wild idea we would have all the participants create a kind of on-the-fly monster manual. So for the viewers and listeners who don't know Dungeons and Dragons, one of the first um, crucial guidebooks for that game was the yeah. Monster Manual, which is a list of monsters mm-hmm. and what they're like and how to oppose them and their strengths and weaknesses. And yeah. Stuff. Yeah. What I did was I, I invited all the audience to think about the monsters of education and technology. Mm. And it was interesting because the few serious gaming nerds were all over this, but everybody else, it was making them concretize mm. more general fears. Mm-hmm. So some of the fears were pretty large, like uh, exhaustion mm-hmm. or overwork mm-hmm. or bad reputation. Mm-hmm. And then we can concretize them into characters. And this was playful. But it was also very serious. Mm-hmm. When I asked in the D and D monster manual, every monster has attributes. It has, yeah. it has armor and so on. So I asked them to think about what are the strengths, what are the attacks, mm-hmm. what are their weaknesses, mm-hmm. uh, who are their allies, and that they, they were all over this. I did this yeah. by Zoom and in part by Google Docs, and they built this out. And then they went out the web, they found art and chunked it in. Then, I, so all this deep dive into fear and dread. I turned it around and said, okay, now that we're in a kind of cheesy, heroic model, who are the heroes Mm -hmm. who can fight these monsters? Mm -hmm. And I I was really afraid that people would say, okay, Alexander, you've gone too far. (laughs) This is too too embarrassing. We're not children, right? People exploded. They were saying parents. They were saying good journalists. They were saying nonprofit leaders. They were naming names. And I had them create these as characters. And by the end, people were energized. They were feeling good. So I mentioned this. I'm not saying you should copy this. Please do if you like. Yeah, it. sure. But also, it seemed to me that it was a way of thinking through this with our imagination and creativity. Yeah. And I think that kind of that pedagogical attitude that we can do a lot with. Mm-hmm. Second is, I think we have so much potential with technology. So, for example, on the high end. And by high, I mean in terms of complexity. We have a lot of work being done in video, as well as in animation, as well as audio, and including mm. 3D and even augmented and virtual reality. Yes. These are tools that we know we can use to improve visualization, mm-hmm. uh, that we can that afford a lot of op- opportunities for creativity from students and learners. And there's really a lot we can do with that. So we can really push on that field now. And so I think that's an area with a lot of potential. Again, there are downsides and flaws of sure. technology. The flip side of this is for the first time in my life, we're actually talking about the digital divide series, yes. Yes. which is amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people, especially people who live in cities or people who have a lot of wealth, are just realizing that this exists. Yes. Um, and so I don't need to rehearse the whole story of that, but now people are thinking, okay, well, if that's true, if we have this unevenness of access, how do we change digital teaching? So there's people who are doing things like shipping out hotspots. Yeah. Uh, 
Bowdoin College, for example, bought a whole stack of iPads and they're shipping them out to students. All the iPads have prepaid data plans for cell phone connectivity. Mm -hmm, If someone's in a region that doesn't have good Wi-Fi or good Ethernet connectivity, they can at least get on the cell phone network. Yeah, yeah. We've got stories of uh, presidents who are driving Wi-Fi enabled buses into low uh, signal strength uh, communities. board uh we've got libraries that are keeping their even though libraries are closed they're leaving their uh, servers open their wi-fi open so people can park around them and get on board Mm -hmm. Uh, and also we're thinking about how what kind of low-tech stuff can we do uh, to people so maybe Mm -hmm. we shouldn't do zoom so much maybe uh do more with text and so there's an argument saying synchronous teaching that live uh back and forth we should downplay that instead have asynchronous teaching okay this is interesting stephen downs from canada was saying that we should downshift from video to audio Mm. a lot of what we do with video is basically talking head we may as well just go to audio which is a fraction of the size in terms of memory easier yeah easier to make that plate that place to my strength as uh, someone who has a, a face for podcasting so uh, there, so yeah we know this from podcasting's huge success that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but you can go back a century and think about the the great history of radio and how much this yeah. that theater of the mind right yes so I, I love that we're rethinking this really carefully now mm-hmm. um, so that's another thing that I'm, I'm pretty confident but the other thing i found just really exciting that this is a time when we are collaborating. Now, not everybody is because some respond in a very human way that when faced with a threat, we, we kind of we become like turtles. You know, yep. we withdraw our soft bits inside of the shell. Uh-huh. And we try to uh, put up barriers and protect ourselves. And that's a very human thing. But at this, and there's some people who don't like to collaborate online because they don't like being online. Or, right. They're nervous. Trust it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But instead, we we also have this huge possibility to collaborate. Community colleges can peer up with research one universities that can learn from military academies that can then hear from second rank state schools about everything they do in this process. Mm -hmm. Uh, People can work across discipline. No discipline owns COVID-19. Epidemiology, yeah, that's pretty essential. Right. But within healthcare, you think about, for example, how important gerontology and elder care is because mm-hmm, that's mm-hmm. the population that's getting killed by this. Yeah. Or you think about psychology because mm-hmm. even though the research field of psychology is more or less a dumpster fire right now, <laughs> you know that the practice of counseling is incredibly needed right now. Absolutely. Uh, and then go beyond that. I mean, talk to sociologists about the impact of social distancing on social interaction. Right. I'll talk to people in history who can tell you about the long history of pandemics and what we know about it. Mm-hmm. I did a, a fun crowdsourced syllabus on literature of pandemics, which mm-hmm. goes back centuries. Yeah. What well, we can learn from that. Yeah. So I think that kind of interdisciplinary learning is also going on. Yeah, yeah. Do you see this as a, a watershed moment in terms of our culture? Because I think there's the response to the pandemic, which uh, in some ways is so fundamental in terms of how we organize ourselves socially and how we use technology, engage with our culture, that even if, let's say 2021, a vaccine comes out and we're on the other side of the pandemic a year plus from now, the world that we'll be navigating into may not ever be the same as the world we were in prior to COVID-19. I'd love to get some of your perspective on that. And by the way, this is amazing. Thank you so much for your time. Obviously, as a futurist, there's no shortage of things for you to, to dive into. 
but I would love to get a little bit of your perspective on how much of this is changing the fabric of our society so that in some ways it argues for jumping into the change because there really won't be as much of an opportunity to go back. But but I'd love to get a little bit of your perspective on that. I've been thinking hard about this uh, ever since December when the pandemic started, well, before it was a pandemic, when COVID Mm -hmm. uh, emerged from um, Hubei province. And there is some precedent for no change. Mm-hmm. The, the great influenza of a century ago, no monuments market. It's rarely taught in history mm-hmm. classes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't have much of a public memory, in part because the medical field largely failed. If you read diaries and journals by nurses and doctors at the time, it's the sense of overwhelming despair that their new sciences could basically help people be comfortable. It's a horrendous tragedy that slipped out of memory. We could do that. That's always possible. But I think there are other possibilities for inflection. For example, we're seeing huge changes in uh, our economy. Mm -hmm. Uh, That is, we're seeing an acceleration, to mention acceleration again, of increasing income and wealth inequality, Mm -hmm. uh, where the wealthiest continue to accelerate from the rest of us, Mm -hmm. uh, whereas uh, incomes have been stable, if not declining, over the past year for everybody else. Yeah. We're seeing changes in businesses where some are just collapsing or cratering. Hollywood, for example, is going nuts right now because yeah. they can't coax people in the theaters mm-hmm. and they can't make movies or TV unless it's on these single you know, one-man shows, right? Yeah, yeah. But I mean, my theory is that we're going to see more of animation and we'll mm-hmm. see more of edited videos. Where yes. Like Adam Curtis's great works where people edit pre-existing video. Yeah. Um, the airline industry is in a, if forgive the expression, a tailspin. Um, yeah. But we're seeing digital companies just take off like mad. Everything, yeah. Amazon, Facebook. But we're also seeing allied fields really boom. If you think about the delivery services, a right. lot of drivers, from what we can tell, shifted from doing Uber and like services to doing Deliveroo and others. Yeah, like. yeah. But we're also seeing a lot of interest in. Uh, home things you can do at home, everything from tabletop gaming that I mentioned before, mm-hmm. going, um, and so there's a kind of ripple effect through the economy, and we have the terrible effect of people who just lost income this year. Yeah. Um, the the census published a note this summer which said that something like 41 percent of families experienced one or more people in their families losing a job or wow. losing a job. Yeah. Uh, so we know historically that this has impacts on wealth formation. Sure. So we're less likely to be able to save and put aside for, for retirement, for example. We know they're going to be more vulnerable to healthcare crises financially, not just physically. Yeah. And we know that people are just starting their careers now. So yeah. much maligned Generation Z are yes. coming out of the gate in the worst time possible. Right. So I think the economic impression is going to be hard and last a long time. And again, I'm not sure if we're going to be cognizant of it. We tried very hard to forget the 2008 financial crash. Two years ago, we had the anniversary of it. People did not want to talk about it. The impact was still very, very sustained. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about changes in the physical environment, Michael. For example, we, we now the sense is that circulation of air inside a building is bad news. Will we see more and more buildings that are renovated or constructed that yeah. have more open to the out, more openings to the outside, bigger yeah. windows, mm-hmm. more uh, you know bigger doors, mm-hmm. porches uh, and deeper porches, and will we see interior spaces either become much larger in order to reflect social distancing, yeah, 
or will we see smaller spaces for individual people to work? Yes. Uh, I, I think there's been some talk about um, redesigning restaurants mm -hmm. so that they are entirely drive-through, mm -hmm. uh, which you know, makes a lot of sense, but they don't have a dining room anymore. Right. Entirely for pickup. You know, what happens, for example, with cars? I, we were, people spoke of peak car over the past 10 years, and there was a lot of rationale for it. More and more Americans were, and more people right. who were living in cities which where you yep. need cars. But right now, cars are terrific social distancing mechanisms. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, so are we going to see Detroit pick up a little lease on life? Will right. See, uh, more people owning and driving cars. And as a side note, I'm a big fan of the Alamo a cinema house. Mm -hmm. uh, I just love their whole approach to film. Well, they're doing drive-in uh, movies. Yeah. Well, you know, physically going into a theater right now is kind of risky. Yeah. But if you could just pull up in a giant field outside, yeah. uh, you've got social distancing built in. Roll mm -hmm. up your windows and you're good, right? That's yeah, a, yeah. So, you know, will we see a, just a rebirth of, of America's car culture? Right. Which then down the road, if you'll forgive the expression, has some negative consequences. We know that Americans uh, happily kill up to 30,000 people a year in uh, collisions and accidents. Right. So you see that death toll start to rise up again. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and, and there's still more that I, I wonder about. There's a lot of concern that we are now having less experience face-to-face -face and more experience that's digitally mediated. So are we going to de-skill ourselves in face-to-face -face interaction mm -hmm. when we finally get out and see people? Right. I, just, yeah. I don't like to get personal about my work, but I can share one anecdote, which is just that I'm a very uh, outgoing person. I'm off the charts and extroversion. Uh -huh. Love being with people. I am now terrified of people. Mm -hmm. When uh, I go out for a walk, if I see someone in the street, it's a horror movie moment. Yeah. I flinch. Yeah. Uh, and I was in a uh, drugstore uh, two weeks ago trying to buy some medicine. And this is how I learned not to go to the drugstore. Behind me, two feet behind me, was someone without a mask. Mm -hmm. and, uh, I saw them and I had this horrific fight or flight reaction. Yeah. Yep. I my feet. I was like, it was like seeing a zombie. Yeah. And, and I actually... I try to be polite. I mean, I try to be nice, but I actually hollered at this person. Yeah, yeah. Where's your mask? Yeah. And 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 they they actually shrugged at me and said, "Oh well." Yeah. I, like, I, yeah. I left. I just had to. I had to walk out because I could. Yeah. Just, but I I wonder what happens. I don't know how representative my experiences are, but what happens to a society if we start meeting together a year from now? Mm -hmm. Will we still be flinching from each other? Yeah. Will we be more formal? Mm -hmm. more likely to use formal language and modes of address mm -hmm. or, or will we race into each other's arms yeah yeah it makes me think of the work of uh, edward hall around proxemics and how humans yeah. organize physical space like it's gone through a, yeah. a fundamental reshaping and we know how we get into behavioral patterns relatively quickly, like typically say six to eight weeks, if your behavior changes, it can become a habit. We're going to look at six to 18 months of significant restructuring of our behavior patterns. It's really an amazing time to be thinking about what that might mean for the future. I realize we're getting close to time, Brian, and we haven't even talked about climate change. So I think <laughs> we'd have to put a pin in that and get you back to talk more about that. But any concluding thoughts? It's just, you're a, a wonderful resource. I would encourage folks to 
track Brian down virtually and with good social distancing if if in person. <laughs> but uh, but track him down. He's got a lot of work. Like if you found this conversation interesting, Brian's cranking out a lot of this type of material on the regular basis. Any concluding thoughts? And I uh, would love to get you back actually to talk more about uh, climate change because uh, Lord knows there's plenty of that going on right now if uh, we look at the wildfires out west. But uh, any concluding thoughts uh, from you as we, we try to wrap up here? Well, we're talking about climate change in part because this is something I've been researching for the past year, and it's mm -hmm. the subject of my next book, mm -hmm. uh, which is the impact of climate change on higher education. I'm looking out to the year 2100. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't, it's a deep topic. And I'd love yeah. to, we don't have time to write the second, but yeah. um, I, I think in many ways that we have to think with a great deal of flexibility and a great deal of care mm -hmm. looking ahead. And I, I, I have, some things hearten me when I think about this. I mean, one is that I think we have a great opportunity to reconnect in a much more democratic way, lowercase d democratic way, with our students. They're having an experience that for some of us is almost impossible to imagine. Think about being 15 mm -hmm. uh, when this happens. Think about being 22. Right. I think this is a great opportunity for us to engage our students in how we co-create the future of higher education. Mm -hmm. We need to hear those stories. We need to bring them on board. We need their advice. Mm -hmm. uh, we need students to help make this uh, gigantic enterprise of higher education. The second thing, I mentioned collaboration. This is a great time to reach out to other people and learn and give help to mm -hmm. people mm -hmm. and share. And the, the third is we are doing all this with such an eye towards justice and equity. And, and again, that heartens me. We're not, it's just one eye, not two. You can see this from some of the fumbles and mistakes we're making just today, learning about the Big Ten universities deciding to play football after all. Right. But I, I think we, are, we have a concern now to, towards justice and equity that we really need to maintain. Mm -hmm. With all of that, I hope we can do so in a spirit of humanity and imagination. Yeah. Yeah, it reminds me of the old Fred Rogers quote, anytime, paraphrasing, anytime there's a, a real tragedy, look for the helpers, because there are always people who are helping. That's really a place where I've been drawing a lot of solace and, and hope really in, in these difficult times. And I will say, Brian is, is a great example of, of someone who is leaning in to help and lean, leaning in to help with the reimagining of this. We could clearly go on at length. Love to get you back to talk more about climate change in the future. But, uh, but for now, I think we're going to thank you for joining, uh, Brian. It was wonderful having you here. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for your time, for your hosting, for your questions, your good sense of humor, and your patience. <laughs> and for our listeners, thank you for all those things as well. Please uh, continue to listen, share with a friend, like us, rate us, love us. Uh, we'll be back again soon. Thanks for listening. This is Trending in Education.